Hi everyone, it's Victoria Stapleton from Little Brown Books for Young Readers and the LB School Library Department. I am so excited to be with you today for this episode of the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. I am with one of my most favorite people ever, and that is Marianne Hoberman, who I have worked with, or because she is a mistress of the English language, I must say, with whom I have worked, since I took this job back in the dark ages of 2005 or 6. Marianne is a former poet laureate of our fine country and has been publishing since 1957 with her first book, All My Shoes Come in Twos. She is always expanding her art and wrote her first novel in 2009, a wonderful book called Strawberry Hill, which you should all run out right now and read. Marianne joins us on the podcast to talk about her career and her brand new book, The Sun Shines Everywhere, illustrated by Luciano Lozano. Welcome, Marianne. Thank you. I'm glad to be here with you, Victoria. Marianne, you have had really a career to envy. It has been very long and very fruitful as a poet and writer. Can you tell us a little bit about your beginnings as a writer and breaking into publishing? Well, my my beginnings as a writer and my breaking into publishing are two different things, but sitting here now at the age I am, they seem very close together. I always wanted to be a writer from the time I was a little girl before I could read or write myself. And I always say that it was because, I think it was because of the fairy tales that must have been read to me. And as soon as I discovered that someone had written some of those fairy tales, one of them was Walter de la Mare's Told Again. And there was an author who had written down these stories. I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I never changed my mind. I got my first book published in 1957. I was 27 years old. And my husband illustrated it, my late husband, Norman. And it was submitted to Little Brown, and it was the first place I submitted it. It was the first book I had ever written, first children's book, and it was accepted. And from then on, I've just been doing that. I had no idea Norman had illustrated that book. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. He illustrated four of the first five books that we published, all with Little Brown. Can you tell me a little bit? Based on your experience, what is different about writing poetry versus prose? Because prose is something you turn to later. Mm-hmm. Well, there's, there's certainly a, a difference. I guess because I wrote that first book for kids when I did, when I had three young children of my own, and the book came out of the little songs and stories that I made up for them, or not really stories, songs and poems that I made up for them and that I'd recite to them at bedtime. And it was quite a while before I even bothered to write them down. When I got the idea that some of these could go into a book, that sort of started my pathway in verse. And I, I've been doing it all my life, more or less, always making up little songs and, and poems. And so I just kept on in that direction. I was encouraged by my first wonderful editor, Little Brown, Helen Jones. She was a wonderful, wonderful editor, an ex-librarian. And she took a chance on us because children's poetry certainly at that time was not particularly popular, and she didn't know how it would sell. But 
she did publish the book, and it did fairly well. And she went on publishing my books of verse, and I just had so much fun doing that that I just continued. You mentioned that you were doing poems and stories for your kids mm-hmm. and that you've always been writing and always been making this poetry and, and these stories. What is the attraction of language to you as a poet? Oh, where should I begin? I love words. I absolutely, I don't know why. I, I'm sure there are psychological reasons why people gravitate to language or to music or whatever. I've just always loved words. I'm always rhyming things in my head when I take walks. The rhythm of my footsteps starts me going. I'm always getting kind of, I I love etymologies. I love, I think of each word almost as a poem because it goes back so far and has so many alternate meanings. I love words with double meanings, words you can make puns out of. I don't know. It's been, language has been such a, the English language, the only other language that I know is French, and I learned that a long time ago, and it's kind of slipped by the wayside. And I did take Latin for three years in high school, for which I'm very grateful, because I think that really helps for anyone who loves language. It gives a kind of a background to each word, and you can trace it back, almost like tracing back its ancestors. So, I don't know, I put myself to sleep each night, kind of (laughs) rhyming things and um, thinking of things that alliterate and go together. And uh, sometimes I think they're pretty good, and if if I don't remember to jot them down, they're gone by morning. And I love the idea that these are always, almost always shared. You began doing these poems and stories for your kids, and when I came to Little Brown, I remember I one of the first things I worked on was one of the You Read to Me, I'll Read to You books, mm-hmm. which have been so very popular. I know we'll talk a little bit more about what you've learned from your readers, but can you talk a little bit about the communal aspect of language and poetry that you've experienced along your well, career? From my own experience, and uh, I started going into schools and libraries and talking before groups, both adults and children, almost from the start, Helen Jones took me to different places to talk to audiences. And once my, I had kids and once they were ready for school, I began visiting their schools and then I began visiting other schools. And I've just, uh, I don't do it much anymore, but I, I did it for decades. I always have felt that stories, and in my case, poetry or verse, is just a, a road. Uh, I always felt that I could go anywhere and just start reciting some poems, poems that the children could participate in. I always get them going with refrains. After a couple, my poems are very bouncy, a lot of them. And after hearing them one time, most kids can really just pick them up and we can say them together. And then when children then, you know, start writing themselves or get very excited about it, it's just, it's just a wonderful feeling. And the other thing is, which is Another wonderful feeling is that I hear now from the grandchildren of people who read my books when they were little and have been given these books by their mothers or their grandmothers or fathers. And if you don't think that's a turn on, it's just wonderful. Oh, but I love that because you mentioned having stories read to you from Walter de Lamar and those folk tales, and that just is putting you in that long tradition of storytelling for new generations. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I just love that. 
How do you know, because you're a very good poet, you've been poet laureate, how do you know when a poem is finished? I don't know. I think that is probably very intuitive. I've written adult poetry, I put mm -hmm. that in quotes, because I, I know from my own experience that a lot of the things that I write can kind of tickle grown-ups too, or, or, and some of them are fairly serious, even though they use fairly simple language and can be enjoyed, I, I guess, by, by various generations. But I think as far as the things that I write for children and the light, the light verse, the funny verse, it's just, you know, the words have a way, the rhythm, the, what you're saying, it tells you, you know, uh, a lot of them are very short. You, you say what you have to say and you say it in the best way you can. But I think that when you're writing probably free verse, for example, which is, I, I write that too, where it doesn't necessarily rhyme and it doesn't have regular rhythm, I think then it's harder to know when something is finished and you spend a longer time at it. Most of the things that I've done, once I get the idea and I get the rhythm and I get that, the title, and then I often get the last line. And then, you know, it's a cliche to say they write themselves. They don't write themselves. But you do depend a lot on, want of a better word, your unconscious. It's kind of given to you that way. It's there, obviously. And you just have to listen to yourself and, and listen to the language. And the language, our English language is just marvelous because like the three bears, you know, not too hot and not too cold, but just right. We have enough rhymes, but not too many rhymes. So it isn't as easy as the Romance languages where everything ends in an A and you can almost put everything together. The English language is more stubborn, but it does have, we have such a large uh, vocabulary because draw on so many other languages that make up the English language. I don't know. Uh, it's a feast. It really is. It's just a banquet of, of words. You can go on, of course, forever and never repeat yourself or repeat what anyone else has ever said either. Has it gotten easier for you over the years to, to write these books? I wouldn't say it's easier, no. It, it's harder for me to write for children a little bit, number one, because I've used up a lot of my childhood, which is the thing that I most depended on for, for writing for children. I wrote out of my own childhood, even more than I wrote by observing my children or other children or going to school. I began writing these things for kids, of course, when I was very young, and my own Especially looking back now, my own childhood was not that far away from me. I, and from this vantage point, I was a kid myself. And I'd always loved being a child. I remember as a child, I loved being a child. And I always felt that I didn't want to grow up sort of like a Peter Pan because the grown-ups didn't know how to play. And I remember having that very strong actual thought and where I had it on those little garden next to our house on West Broad Street in Stamford, Connecticut. I remember having that thought. The grown-ups didn't know how to play, and I just was worried about growing up. But then you do grow up, and you grow away from things. A lot of other things happen to you. I had a very, I've had a very good run, obviously. Uh, but right now, I'm very interested in, in things that are going on in my life today. Inside, I'm still that kid. Uh, Thank goodness, you don't lose it completely. But between the fact that the years, many years have gone by and that I've written so much uh, for children out of my own childhood, 
I think probably it's harder now to do. And also, uh, I'm just amazed that what I write now is something that children today, I mean, I'm not amazed in a way because I don't think children change that much, but they have so many other opportunities. They grow up much more quickly in certain ways now. And so it's just a marvelous thing that I can write a book now. And I hope that it still will appeal to kids. Well, speaking of writing books now, you do have a new book coming out. As we mentioned, The Sun Shines Everywhere. What Mm -hmm. was your motivation for this book? The title. It just popped in the way many of my titles do. It just popped into my head one day, and some of the lines came immediately, the rhythm of it. I don't remember where. It was probably on a walk, because that's usually when I get my good ideas. I wrote it a while ago, and I think that Megan Tingley even looked at it then, and for one reason or another, it didn't get published. And I never submitted it anywhere else. I hadn't completely finished it, but I always loved it. And it was in a cabinet in the filing drawer, and Megan remembered it and sort of said she thought that the time had come. And I think the t- I think this is perfect timing for that book because with the troubles we're having now and with climate on, on the uh, agenda and with all of us so concerned about what's going on with the world and global warming and that sort of thing, this book is, well, it's homage to the sun. It really is. And sun needs a lot of, <laughs> a lot of concern right now. Well, do you have a favorite sequence from the book? Sure. Oh, I'm so excited that you do have a favorite sequence. Would you read that to us? I would. I'd love to, of course. And I'm looking at these gorgeous pictures by Luciano uh, Lozano, um, the the illustrator, whom I haven't met. He's in Spain, but they're so close to what I imagined that they should be. I'll start off with the beginning of the book. Some children live in Paris and others live in Rome. Some children dwell in New Rochelle, and some call China home. Some children live in Delhi, and some in Delaware. It doesn't matter where you live. The sun shines everywhere. Some flowers bloom in Fiji, and others bloom in Spain. Some flowers grow in Tokyo, and others grow in Maine. Flowers need the rain to grow. They also need the air. But mostly they need sunshine, and the sun shines everywhere. It may shine on Earth's other side, and that is why it's night. It may be covered by some clouds and hidden out of sight. But though we cannot see it, we know it's always there. Because no matter where we are, the sun shines everywhere. Our sun once shone on dinosaurs and beasts that are no more. It shone on oceans full of fish and seashells washed ashore. Blazed upon the pyramids and warmed the desert sands. It spread its rays on Greece and Rome and other ancient lands. In feast and famine, peace and war, it made its steady way throughout the whole of history. It's never missed a day. The world is full of animals. We see some at the zoo, from pandas off in China to llamas in Rue, from crocodiles along the Nile to growling grizzly bear. Each creature sees the sun because. The sun shines everywhere. And I'm going to skip a while. Some children dwell in Switzerland with mountains all around. 
while others dwell in Holland and live on level ground. Some children live on islands like Cuba or Capri, while others live far inland and never see the sea. So many people in the world, so many different faces, so many different languages, so many different places. But no matter where we are, the sun, it doesn't care. Just wait a while and it will smile. The sun shines everywhere. And I could go on, but I, <laughs> I think that's probably enough. I almost started chanting with you, the sun shines everywhere. <laughs> the sun shines everywhere. Oh, what a lovely, exuberant poem you're sharing with us. And you're right. Luciano Lozano's illustrations are just as exuberant and match the energy and joyfulness of, of this piece you've written for us. You mentioned earlier that you had done so many school visits over the decades, less so now, but so many, and you've probably spoken to tens of thousands of children in schools over the years. What have you learned over that time from your readers? Well, I guess I've learned that kids love rhythm, they love rhyme, they love humor. They love to talk. <laughs> they, they love to share things that they know that have a connection, sometimes not a connection even, uh, with what your book's about when you read to them. There's nothing more fun than going into a, a schoolroom and after a few minutes, as, as you just said, you wanted to chant along, getting the kids to chant along with you. Or in the old days, I would also go in and hold writing groups, and that it's wonderful to see the ideas that come out of young minds. Uh, one of the books that I wrote is called A House is a House for Me. It's the book that won the National Book Award all those years ago, and it has been so much fun and so gratifying. I have boxes full of books that children have sent to me where they've written their own A House is a House for Me kind of ideas and stories. They gave me so many ideas that I could have certainly written several sequels. You know, the, it starts A House is a House for Me, uh, Nothing So Snug as a Bug in a Rug, and A House is a House for Me. And then the kids will do things like My Mouth is a House for Words, or My Finger is a House for Its Fingernail, or whatever. I'm just, they've done far better than that. But anyway, I feel so strongly that teachers should take time with all that they're doing nowadays, all they have to do to just read to the kids regularly in class, to have them read poetry regularly, memorize poems. My book, the collection of, of poems for memorization, Forget-Me-Nots. I think there's nothing more wonderful that you can give to a child than the idea that there are poems there for memorization and that once you have them, you have them for life. And it's so much easier when you're small, when you're young, to memorize poetry. I, I try now and I encourage uh, adult friends, I get together with them to read poetry, and I encourage them to memorize them. We all have such a hard time. But the poems you remember from your childhood never leave you. That's another thing that when I went around, around to schools, I really was a proselytizer for memorization. And finally, Marianne, can you give any advice to young poets? Well, I give the same advice. I, this is 
not original at all. Read, read, read. That, I think, and read poetry, uh, recite it, again, memorize it, say it out loud. And then when you're starting to, if, if, if you feel that, if we're talking about writing for children, go to the library, go to the bookstores. Um, if you have your own young kids, go to their school libraries, uh, see what they're reading in school, talk to people uh, about that, because you have to inform yourself about what's out there and what's going on. And when you want to get an idea, if you have if you've written something, how to what to do with it. It's silly to reinvent the wheel. You really want to just have, make sure your idea is, is fresh and new, and I mean, or the way you're telling it is fresh and new. There's the, the wonderful organization, of course, the uh, Society of Children's Writers and Illustrators, that my niece, Deborah Friedman, also writes children's books, and she's being very successful at it. She writes some wonderful books. And she uh, is a member of this group. And they have groups all around the country who meet and who critique each other's work. And they have conferences. And they have places where you can meet editors and agents. And so I urge anybody who is really serious about this to look into that. But mainly, it's to read and to write and not just say, oh, I have a good idea for a children's book. I, I get this so often. Someone will come up to me and say, oh, I have the most wonderful idea for a children's book, but I just haven't done it. Well, nothing's going to come of that, you know. You're gonna, if, you're, if you have an idea and you're really serious about it, then put in some time. Put in some time sitting down with your pen and paper or at your computer, however you do this. I still write with a fountain pen and a yellow pad, and then put it into the computer later. But however you do it, uh, you know, it takes some work. But as a career, I think it has given me far more than I've given it. It was a wonderful way to raise a family of four kids and to be at home with them and to still be out in the world and doing something I really Oh, Marianne, that is the perfect note on which to end. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you, Victoria. It was fun. I love talking about it. Gentle listeners out there in the virtual universe, this has been Victoria Stapleton for the Little Brown School and Library podcast. With me has been legend, I think that's a really good word for her, Marianne Hoberman. Her new book is The Sun Shines Everywhere illustrated by Luciano Lozano. Please make the right life choice and put it on your bedside table now.